everybody, this is Keith Baker, host of the Private Lender Podcast. I want to thank you for listening during the hiatus. So I've come up with this kind of best of scenario where I'm going to play some of my favorite episodes. Some of them for good reasons, that there's good value. Some of them because I enjoyed the interview or had a blast. And I want to punish you, dear listener. Uh, but I hope you guys enjoy it. Nothing is going to be altered or changed from the original recording except this little promo that I'm doing right here. And I want to thank you for listening, and I will be back in a few weeks with some brand new episodes, and I hope you guys are doing well. Private Lender Podcast, Episode 1. And I think making a loan, especially as a private lender, I think one of the first things you want to do before you make that loan is look at the risk for you, look at the risk for you, and then decide, should I take this risk? And if I am going to take it, meaning I can mitigate it, can I mitigate it? Can I minimize it? And if I am going to... What is my return for the fact that I had to do all that? This is the Private Lender Podcast, the show that shares practical advice and know-how for new and seasoned lenders, from private mortgages on single-family houses to joint ventures on commercial projects and beyond. Discover details about investment vehicles that you won't find at your local bank or online broker. Listen and learn from private lenders and real estate investors, as well as from professionals and entrepreneurs, as they share the details, strategies, and the insight that allows for successful and prosperous lending. Now, get ready to increase your ROI. Here's your host, Keith Baker. Welcome to the great experiment that is the Private Lender Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Baker. Thank you for tuning in and joining me today and sharing your most precious commodity with me, and that is your time. Today is the Maiden Voyage, episode one. And to help kick it off, I have the privilege of speaking with Stephen Kaufman today, who has been a big influence uh, on my not only my lending, uh, my investing, but also in my day-to-day mindset. And, and how I see the world, I guess you could say. Stephen leads a millionaire mastermind group that I highly recommend to anyone who's looking to hone their real estate investing skills or just investing skills in general who may need some help with mindset or to just take their investing game to the next level. When I decided to do the podcast, I immediately thought of Stephen, great person to interview for episode one. And when I reached out, he quickly and graciously agreed. So I'm honored to have him here today. This is the first interview in the first episode. Like I said, it's the maiden voyage. And it sounds like it, and that's okay. Uh, I'm going to put it out there as it is with only a little bit of post-production editing because uh, I want it to be raw. I want you to hear the flaws. I want it to be honest, and I want it to be real. So this is the baseline episode from which all of the episodes are going to be judged. So it could only get better from here. <laughs> At least I hope so. <laughs> anyway, I do want to take a moment and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the maiden voyage of this podcast and for walking down this unknown road with me as we all head into the heart of the 21st century. I think that a lot of really cool stuff is going to happen just on the other side of the horizon. So with that, let's go ahead and get straight into Stephen's interview. Stephen Kaufman is a finance enthusiast. Stephen is the founder and chief acceleration officer of Zeus Trust Company, which operates a real estate crowdfunding platform under the brand ZeusCrowdfunding.com and a long-term lending platform under the brand Zeus Mortgage Bank. Stephen has coordinated over a billion dollars in real estate financing for companies like American Express, Hewlett Packard, and ExxonMobil. Zeus is the 37th fastest growing private financial service firm in the United States, according to Inc. Magazine. Stephen is frequently interviewed by local and national news organizations like Fox, ABC, CBS, CNN, and Bloomberg on the current financial markets. He's completed the strategic marketing management program at Harvard Business School and has a master's degree in economic development and entrepreneurship from the University of Houston. He is currently completing his PhD in organizational leadership at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. His unparalleled finance experience has made him the leading expert on real estate financing. And Stephen has honored me by being the first guest on the Private Lender Podcast. Stephen, welcome and thank you so much for being here with me, for me, and for the listeners. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much. That's exciting. That was uh, an awesome introduction. Thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, How long did it take you to write that? I grabbed it right off of one of your websites. I can't remember which one. So uh, whoever you paid to write that for you did a good job. Awesome. <laughs> so let's take a few moments and just kind of fill in the gaps behind all of that wonderful introduction and all those amazing accomplishments. Give us a little, a little insight into your, your path into becoming a lender and how you came to start Zeus Mortgage Bank and the crowdfunding platform and, you know, and your other endeavors such as coordinating and facilitating the Millionaire Mastermind and uh, the Fanatical Change Foundation. So you've got 
60 seconds. Okay. So it goes now. All right. So as the story goes, when I was about 20, I was in an elevator with a man who at the time looked to be really old. He was 40. And now I feel like that's very, very, very young. And I asked him what he did for a living. And he said he is a retired or about to retire. And I said, well, would you mind telling me what you do? And he said, real estate. And I said, would you give me some advice? I, I showed a lot of bravery and courage because normally I wouldn't ask that, especially at that age. And he agreed to meet me for a cup of coffee. And we met not at a Starbucks because Starbucks weren't that popular back then. We met at a grocery store. And for about an hour, two hours, I don't know how long exactly, he spilled his guts on his strategy. And in fact, I still teach some of his strategy today. And I used it to change the course of my life and the life of my children. One of the parting pieces of advice he gave me was to join a real estate investor association. And in every major city in the country, there's a RIA or a real estate investor association. I, I followed his advice because I'm very coachable. It's one of my flaws and strengths at the time is that uh, when someone gives me advice, I'll usually follow it if I believe in them. And so I joined the local real estate association that uh, Keith, uh, you were on the board of or directors for and it transformed my life i bought a few properties right away by the time i was 21 years old i owned three single family homes and as they say the rest is history when it comes to real estate investing i've been progressing from that point on and took multi-million dollar deals many multi-million dollar deals and prior during the time where i was transitioning in residential real estate and i was working as an accountant and i'm a cp licensed cpa and i don't practice any longer i I didn't like being an accountant as much as I liked being around real estate people and financing. And I really gravitated towards the financing because I like the strategy part of that. And the thing about real estate investing is the strategy is in the beginning, but once you're done, then you have to go pick up a hammer or hire someone to pick up a hammer. And it's not, it's a lot less strategy and a lot more implementation. I didn't, didn't at the time love that as much. I loved more the strategy, figuring out the deal. Is it a good deal? Analyzing it. Cause I was a CPA practicing CPA. So now financing, it's all strategy. You're helping people strategize. Is this a good deal? What's the best financing to have the highest ROI? And that is how I transitioned. I transitioned about 15 to 17 years ago, somewhere in there uh, into full-time financing. I still am an active real estate investor. One of the three pillars of my business, one is long-term financing. One is short-term financing, like ZeusCrowdfunding.com is the example of short-term financing. But the third pillar is actually commercial investment and development. Was that the right answer? No, no, that's no, that's that's great. No, that's 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 awesome. That was more than sixty seconds. No, perfect. Yeah, no, that's that's fine. I was just teasing about the sixty seconds there. You spoke on, you know, you like the strategy versus the implementation. But at one point, was it did it click for you, like lending, like did it always was it always make sense to you just from the beginning? I'm going to loan somebody money; they're going to give me extra money in return, or was it a slower progression? Or at you know, at what point do you go? Yeah, I'm going to open a bank, and it's going to be Zeus, and this is going to how it's going to be. Great question. So I think you heard the story that I actually made my first hard money loan when I was 14 years old. Uh, in fact, it involved a foreclosure and it almost cost me my life. The borrower actually tried to kill me. As a matter of fact, that's a true story. It is not a, a and and it still lives up to this day. Okay. One, I haven't heard it too. You're going to have to back it up for our listeners and we've got to hear this now. This is too good to let go. So when I was 14 years old, I had been working a couple of jobs, even at 14, because I grew up in a trailer park, really poor. And the thing everyone did was work. And so I worked all the time. I saved up a good amount of money and I, everyone in the trailer park wants to buy a car so they can leave the trailer park. I, I couldn't afford, I could afford a car, but I couldn't afford, I couldn't figure out a way to get a driver's license because I couldn't get a work permit or a hardship permit. So I realized I owned a car that I could not legally drive. So I ended up selling the car on a hard money loan terms, the hard money type loan, asset based at a high interest rate. And I figured out that in, a, in two years, I'd actually make all my money back plus high interest or the risk of taking for the borrower. The borrower was very risky and be able to buy a better car. And I understood that math very simple interest. I understood it and I thought, okay, this is exciting. And about six, eight months into the loan, the borrower stopped paying and I had to strategize on foreclosing. And I did foreclose, meaning re repossess the car. And the borrower was very upset and he tried to kill me. And when I say try to kill me, I mean, he had felony charges against him. He was 20, he was 24. I was 14. He tried to kill me. And so he, he went to jail for aggravated felony assault and I sold the car, got some money. And so I understood at a young age how financing worked and how it can pay dividends. All, there's more than one way to get to the top of a, a mountain. And I find that real estate can get you there a lot faster, not real estate financing in particular, but I'm a, I'm a whale hunter. So I don't, 
I never, I recognized early on that I didn't want to do a lot of transactions. I prefer to do really, really good transactions, but I didn't need quantity. I needed quality. And that means I had to make a living in between that time, between those things paying off. And I see a lot of investors who make a sacrifice. They need to make a living as a full-time real estate investor. So they will do deals to churn them to make a living. That has never been attractive to me. And I think you and I both know people who do that, or they sell some other service. Well, the other service I sell in between whale hunting is something I've become a master at, which is financing, financing and structuring financing for real estate investors and homeowners. We handle every type of financing from a first-time home buyer or a consumer to buy their first home all the way through a reverse mortgage. And what that's really doing is, I'll say, buying me time between the whales that I'm looking for and hunting for. I was wondering if you could take us through your worst lending decision. And I mean by like the outcome was the worst. It could be the worst outcome or it's just the biggest boneheaded decision loan you've ever made or decision to make that loan. What, is, what does that look like or what did that look like? That's a great question. And I, I'm racking my brain right now quickly to try to, you know, I'm going through the Rolodex. Yeah, take your time if you need it. It's, it's kind of an ambush question. So it's... No, well, I have the answer. And the answer is in, in the, the way we lend, we don't make whale type loans to keep that metaphor going. We make very strategic loans at typically, I'll say $2 million or less. So any one deal that went goes bad, it doesn't put our company ever in a situation where we're compromised. Have we made some dumb loans where we took a borrower at his word and, uh, on one part of the, the evaluation and the underwriting and it, the loan moved forward that it maybe shouldn't have? Or we let a borrower get in over their head without looking at their experience? Yes. But none of those have been really dramatic over the other. I'd say they're all equal, you know, and we learn from them and try to move forward. Just like a real estate investor who's done a bad deal where they were optimistic or they let their ego buy the property and not their, not their economics buy the property. The other E, you know, it's a competition of the two E's always. Is, is it economical and is it, or is it your ego? And you want to make deals based on economics, not on your ego. And I know lots of investors who've purchased single family homes and larger assets based on their ego totally just to have a deal and the economics never lined up really. They, they wanted to believe that it would work and it never did. And on the financing side, because we, we don't ever let a single deal ever put us in a situation where it would be a big disaster. I, I can't say there's any one particular deal. And from a foreclosure rate, I think you know this, but I'll just say it to everyone listening. As a company in 15 years, we have less than a 1% foreclosure rate. So it's less than 1%. In fact, and sometimes it's less than 1% of 1%, depending on where we are in our volume. So to tell you that we haven't taken back a lot of properties would be an understatement because our business model is to be lending vehicle or the lending partner of our, of our clients, not their competitor. And what I mean by that is there are people who are in our business who love foreclosing because when they get that asset, they repair it and then they make all the money. So the minute you miss a payment or the minute you don't do it the way they said, they love taking that property back because they have a whole business around organized around selling those properties. We do not. So we don't like taking it back a property. We prefer to make help people be successful so they'll come back and borrow more money from us. That's our strategy and it's worked that way for 15 years. Excellent. Okay. So we try to never be in a situation. And in fact, just so you know, that's also my real estate. I translate that totally to real estate investing as well. Not just real estate lending, but real estate investing. They're, in that regard, they're similar as well. You don't ever want to do a deal that if that deal went south, you would jeopardize it. Your, all of your net worth or all of your livelihood, there's going to be risk on every loan, just like there's going to be risk on every real estate investment you have. Your job is to mitigate that risk. I use the metaphor actually on another interview. I did another interview this morning. Uh, I'm cheating on you. Um, I'm sorry. It's me. It's me. It's not you. You're wonderful. Uh, but I know, and I use this metaphor and I've used it before that there's risk to everything. When you drive, there's a lot of risk. And what you do to mitigate the risk is you you take safety precautions. You put your seatbelt on. You go the speed limit. You drive drive a good vehicle. You, so the vehicle that you're using is, is solid. You use GPS to the destination that you're you're planning on going, so you don't get lost to get off track and go into a bad neighborhood. All those things you do with real estate investing and real estate lending. With real estate investing, you put your seatbelt on. With the, you make sure you only are using the vehicles that you know and understand because you don't want to operate a vehicle going at a high rate of speed that you don't understand. You never invest when you're inebriated. Just like you never drive when you're inebriated. So you should never, you know, all, all the same precautions work. And ultimately, you need a good GPS system. You need either a good lender. You need not just a good lender, but you need a good lender or a good partner or a good mentor or all those things so that you're going to the destination you're attending. You don't get off track. Uh, you're touching on it. So I want to, someone's out listening right now. Let's say 
their, their cousins come to them. Hey, I want to flip this house. You've got some money. Let's partner up. Or, you know, why don't you loan it to me? First position lean. You know, in the course of that, how would you recommend somebody, a newbie? You touched on the mentors and I'm huge on that as well. But in, in terms of developing your lending criteria, for example, uh, in my private lending, I tell everyone at least three times, I will not do a second position on any property. But I put that guard up front to one, to keep the riffraff away, <laughs> to remind me that I don't do second position liens. It's just part of my lending criteria. I know people who will. They want the higher interest, they'll take the risk. But and when you were developing your lending criteria for not just personally, like when you sold the car on, on terms, but as you're putting Zeus together, how to kind of walk us through how you you built up your your lending criteria and and please you know failures pick yourself up you know where you got lucky I certainly have gotten lucky and that a a title company returned all my funds plus interest to me and I did a happy dance when I got the email so yeah if you could just walk us through how you developed your lending criteria a couple things you said but I'll get to lending criteria but can I say something before that philosophically like you we don't do a second lean or third lean or fourth lean position loans. In fact, we teach people how to do that. I had to organize that with sellers of property, had to do a second and a third so they could take the second and then sell that to someone else for cash, but they saw that third lien remaining. So we do, we, in fact, I think you have either been in a course where I've taught it or, and I'm a fan of that when you're dealing with seller financing or even lender financing, traditional lender, if you can get them to do it. Philosophically as a company and principally as a company, we don't do any lien outside of a first lien. In fact, I have a five second lien story and it goes like this, ready? I once did five second liens. In five seconds or less, I'll tell you none of them paid. And that's when we decided we'll never do them again. Five second, five second liens, we don't do them. And so I'm, a, I'm not a fan of those. I think that you, you, if you're gonna take that kind of risk, you'd be better off maybe going to Vegas or doing some gambling. Um, your, your chance of, uh, you, you should buy Bitcoin if you're gonna do second liens. But that's just our perspective. I understand if you have nothing else to look at, maybe you think it's worth the risk. And I'm not saying you should never do them. I'm just saying, saying we don't do them. Now, regarding the investment criteria that you're mentioning, for private lenders looking to figure out criteria, this is a great topic. And this is the heart of your, your podcast, which I love. And I, and I would love to contribute any way I can because I wouldn't want people to make the mistakes that I have made or we have made as an underwriting. We are two things as a company. We're a marketing company and an underwriting company. Everything else is just packaging. But what we do is market for business and underwrite things. Assess risk. That's what we, what we really do fundamentally. And we're really, really, really good at it. And I'll argue we're the best in our in any space that we operate, both um, in both on both fronts. From an underwriting standpoint, one thing that you said, which is awesome, is when, when did I or how did I develop my underwriting criteria? And one thing I really want you to understand is we're still doing it. <laughs> it's still evolving. We developed something called a Z-score. That's a risk assessment. And I'll, I'll call it an algorithm for marketing reasons, but because I'm, you're inside the veil protection and you can, I'm going to let you see under the kimono a little bit. It's a fancy Excel spreadsheet that we call an algorithm that helps us assess risk. And we've been developing it. And anytime we miss something with a borrower or a transaction, we look into the, the, the spreadsheet, the algorithm and see what did we miss? Why did that not catch that? And it's ever evolving. It's not perfect. In fact, right now, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly making improvements to it. And it's not only in internal improvements, there are external improvements that have to be made because the market changes and your tolerance will change based on the market. When there are a lot of deals and the market's very healthy, you can be very generous or liberal with your lending criteria. Now that's relative. You might be more generous than we would be. But, other, if you, but philosophically, again, you could be more liberal than when you were in the middle of a pre-recession or a market correction. That's when you maybe need to tighten back your criteria, drop your LTV, raise your credit score, raise your asset requirement, things like that. But to give away our, you know, our philosophy is CIAE, really CIA, which is credit income assets, and then the E is the equity. So we're looking at those four factors, CIAE, credit income assets and equity on a borrower and we're in a transaction, we're evaluating all of them. We don't make exclusive, we've learned, everyone's learned the lesson who's been doing this for more than 20 years. You never make a, a decision asset only, and you never make it borrower only. If you make it independent of the other, you're going to lose money ultimately when one of the either the borrower changes or the market changes. So we don't recommend, and in fact, I would highly discourage someone from making asset-based loans unless they're doing it temporarily when they're at the top of the market and it's really you know hard to lose. But if you're doing that when there looks like the market's slowing down or there could be a correction, 
your asset that you made all of your underwriting decision on could alter just like if you made your loan uh, uh, for a borrower without even looking at the asset, the borrower's lifestyle could change. They could have a death, a marriage, a, a divorce, a child, a life event could totally throw off their profile. And if you didn't consider the asset at all, you made a very, very myopic underwriting decision, which we would discourage. That, that was a long answer. I'm hoping I'm answering what you're looking for. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to unpack that just a little bit without getting into the secret sauce at Zeus, because I know it is proprietary. However, for example, you mentioned LTV, which uh, loan to value, you know, there are, and uh, first let's, let's, um, let's back up a little. And this is, I assume th- these criteria fit both your retail residential mortgage for Joe and Jane Doe off the street and as your hard money loans towards your, your real estate investors. Yeah, the one advantage we have for the, what we call retail mortgages, uh, Jane and Joe, is I think you mentioned buying a home to live in or refinancing that home on long-term lending or looking for a reverse mortgage, which are three, we love, we love helping people buy a home. We love helping them refinance their home and we love helping families looking for a reverse mortgage. Uh, the new, the new reverse mortgage or reverse mortgages 2.0 are an amazing tool for seniors and their families to help provide a, a, an amazing uh, a resource to them at a time when they really need it. We love the product now, now that it's been really redone over the last several years, but we're lucky because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and HUD or FHA really give guidelines on underwriting criteria. So we don't really have to create the underwriting for those loans. We're given the underwriting for those loans. So we, that's where you could call us a franchise, in essence, of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD because we're not making that up, what the requirement is. They're telling us what the requirement is and what they'll accept. Now, on the non-traditional side or short-term loans, for youthcrowdfunding.com, which offers short-term hard money loans and mid-term non-traditional loans, we have to create that underwriting criteria. And I don't know which one you want to focus on, but I'll, I'll gladly focus on either. Let's go, let's go with your short-term, the, the investor loans, your, your, your typical hard money. How about okay. that? So LTV there, we're one of the few companies for a while, and we still do this occasionally, we'll go to 80%. But let me clarify how we get there. We actually start every borrower with a max of 75% if they'll qualify. And then after their fifth transaction, every transaction they do with us, they get an incre- 1% increase in their LTV. So if you borrow and pay off a loan with us, you can go from 75 to 76%. Then you can go from 76 to 77, 78, 79, up to 80% loan to value if you've completed five transactions with us. That's for our more serious full-time investors who use us a lot. We're part of their team. We have a lot of trust for them. A lot of transparency goes along with them. And we're a valued asset for, their, for them building their real estate business. That's in a good market. In a so-so market, 70 and 75 becomes the max. And then in a questionable market or definitely in a corrective market, 60 to 65 becomes the mark. Of course, 65% is the standard in non-traditional hard money lending. That's the accepted standard long-term. So you can take a period of three or four or five years out every here and there. But if you looked at it across the board, you'd find that 65% is the standard. And it won't be long before we're back there again. You just jarred my memory. Uh, we're coming up on, on, on your date. Yeah. 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 February 16th, uh, 2018, Red Friday. That was, was, that is, was the date that I predicted that uh, we could see the next major correction or recession. But the market seems so healthy right now, even though it is going up like the biggest roller coaster I've ever seen. I don't think it's, it could, I don't think it'll be that soon. A lot of the, all the indicators for a, a recession are just not in sight right now. So I was wrong. You, I hope this is being recorded and don't show my wife. Uh, actually, she might want a recording of this so she can like replay it when she's going to bed at night. I was wrong. It will not be that soon. I, I, I don't know if it'll be in 2018 at all anymore because the market's looking so healthy. And I would say the market, I don't mean equities. Uh, I mean just overall the economy as a whole and China uh, still holding strong. They've, they're teetering, but they're, they're holding very strong. So, so you're speaking more from a macro level here, GDP overall. Job, job growth, um, the yield curve, liquidity, all the major indicators are, are just really healthy. And so the market surprisingly looks like it could go another year two or three, possibly four years. I'm not saying that it will. I don't think 2018, I think the most we can look forward to in 2018 is, um, is a correction in the, in the market. That's about the most I think we could look forward to. And I wouldn't say that would be in the first quarter. I would predict that somewhere in the second to midway through the second quarter. And um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a guess. I, I just don't think it would be in the first quarter. I think it would be somewhere later if there's a correction. 
Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it's. I, I still just uh, am shocked every day. Put on CNBC, and it's like, wow, everything's in the yeah. green again, and it's just just trucking along. So, okay. Well, just remember. Well, some things aren't in the green, and they're still trading. So their 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 stocks are you know increasing, but the companies themselves are not in the black. I should say. So their companies are yeah. losing money that have very we'll call it poor fundamentals or wishful fundamentals, and they're still trading at a high level and their stock price is going up dramatically, yet the companies have never made money and it's seems like a long-term, long outlook for when they will make money. So you're paying for something today based on what you hope it'll be worth in the future. Uh, that, that's really speculative. Getting back to risk, how would you recommend somebody getting comfortable one, comfortable with risk, and two, with the idea of they're going to have to mitigate it. Okay. I don't, risk is the conversation. I mean, when you're in lending, it, again, it's, uh, to me, it's marketing underwriting is what my, my business comes down to. I think the way you mitigate risk is like you said, you look at how you can lose or the downside. I, I have a mentor, a business partner, friend who, when I was first looking at a deal with him, probably about 18, 17 years ago, one of the things that he wrote, he, he wrote on a legal pad, and this, he's done this many, many, many times. Uh, and I've seen him do it with all sorts of transactions. It wasn't for me, but I'd, I made major notice of it when he did it, because it's the first time I'd ever seen someone do this. He took a legal pad and he did what's called, sometimes referred to as the Ben Franklin close. I don't know if you've ever heard that. A Ben Franklin close is the pro and con code closing. So you walk with a buyer. Basically, you, take, you draw a T-bar on the page line across the top, you draw in the middle, and you make the pros and the cons. On either side, you hope the pros outweigh the cons. And he did it that way, but he did it in a really unique way. He didn't write uh, pros and cons. He wrote con and pro. And on the con part, this is going to, maybe you want to, you'll have to bleep this out later, but he actually, or screen out later, but he actually wrote, uh, how do I get as the, as the con? And he said, I always start with that first. And then I asked him, well, I've never seen one. He wrote, literally wrote it on his own piece of paper. Not for me to see. He just wrote it. How do I get And on the pro side, he said, how do I make money? And he wanted to only hear about, on the process, how he could lose money to start. And if could he get over all of those risks? And if he could somehow mitigate or limit or curb those risks, then he wanted to know what he was going to make. Because whatever was left on the con side, right, the law side, he wanted to know that on the winning side, they were matched up appropriately. Because if you could lose everything on a transaction, like lose it, no collateral, no nothing, you, you better have a pretty amazing pro or a pretty amazing advantage on the other side. Like I'm going to get an amazing interest rate. Well, that's how he analyzed deals. And I wouldn't say we analyze them the same way, definitely not with the same language. But you do, I think, want to start at how, what's the worst case? You don't want to get lost in that because if you get lost in that, you want to know that there's risk, like I said earlier, to everything, including driving. If you only were paralyzed by what could happen to you in a car, I mean, your chance of really dying in a car is high. I think you, I think the chance of going from 50 to 60 miles an hour in a vehicle, I think your chances of dying are, you know, 300% higher or something like that. You, if you get in a car accident at 35 miles an hour, I think the chance of like fracturing your, one of your, your, your vertebrae is uh, 80% or something like that. Some, all these weird um, uh, statistics. If you only focus on that, you don't focus on the benefits of driving and what it provides for you and how you can mitigate those risks. So I think the driving metaphor really works because there's a lot of risk with being in a vehicle. It can, it's expensive. It can break down. You could lose it. You could hit an uninsured driver. You could do damage to them and you have the moral issue of dealing with what you did to them if you made a mistake or, or paying attention. Um, all those things. You want to look at those, but then you also want to shift over, am I getting a benefit? Can I mitigate the risk in the middle? And am I getting an equal benefit for the risk I am taking? And I think making a loan, especially as a private lender, I think one of the first things you want to do before you make that loan is look at the risk for you, and the risk is relative. Look at the risk for you and then decide, should I, should I take this risk? And if I am going to take it, meaning I can mitigate it, that's what I mean when I say, should I? Can I mitigate it? Can I minimize it? And if I am going to, what is my return for the fact that I have to do all that? Like, can I get insurance for the fact that there, something can happen to the property? Yeah, sure you can. But you're gonna have, you're gonna need to make sure that you're listed as the mortgagee on that insurance policy. Well, that takes a little bit of time, so you need to, you want to be compensated for that. And all of that goes into whatever your interest rate is, obviously, and whatever your other arrangements are, fees and rate and so forth. Can I mention something that just is speaking to me? Sure. Because I think your audience, a lot of the people who are listening to your podcast, are listening from a perspective of I want to lend out money, uh, my own funds, or I want to partner with someone who does that, and. 
if you're going to be lending out your own money, which is what I do for a living, mostly is lending my money. I, of course, lend other people's as well, but my primarily, I'm primarily lending my money, at least initially. And this phrase gets overplayed a lot, but you really do need a great team around you. And if you're going to lend money, you definitely need someone who can evaluate the value of a property, you can, who can evaluate the condition of a property, and that may or may not be the same person, by the way. It could be. And you need a legal team. And one of the things that I'm shocked about is how many private lenders will try to use their own documents to save a little bit of money. When that the risk to that, there are lots of documents online and people will share documents and a lot of RIAs or investment groups, people will share documents pretty easily. You just want to know that you, you know, you're risking 50, you know, 20, 50, a hundred thousand, 200, a half a million dollars using someone's document uh, that could have a, a fatal flaw in it that could really cost you a lot of money in legal fees later compared to going to a lawyer who's really experienced in this and doesn't cost very much. I'm, I'm very, very pro title company lawyer for real estate transactions. It's not, you're not going to do this from anyone else. It's taboo even sometimes to say in the echelon of lawyers, sorry, lawyers who are listening, title company lawyers don't always get the respect that they want or deserve. They're transactional in nature. And I think they get frowned upon by other lawyers. That's just my sentiment. I could be totally wrong. I'm not, but I could be. But I love title company lawyers on real estate transactions because they understand title very well and they understand transactions that I'm dealing with very well. And so I recommend that you find the lawyer who runs or owns one of the title companies that you want to use and get them to do review some of your docs or do your doc work. Because then you know if there's ever an issue, you can go back to that title company to get the transaction done because the lawyer who owns it can help you facilitate that. And I would never use recycled legal docs unless you were told by the lawyer to do that because I think the risk is pretty high. So again, the th I think the three big are property value, uh, value evaluation, uh, condition evaluation, and legal evaluation. And what separates a good private lender from another in all skills, actually, and the secret to life. Are you, you want a nugget? Here's the secret. Here's the secret to life in, or secret to business life and arguably even your personal life. What will give you quality, a quality business and a quality relationship is your ability to evaluate something. Can you evaluate when it's a time to pick a fight with your wife or not? Can you evaluate whether you, this is someone who should be your wife or not, or husband or not? Can you evaluate whether this is a good deal or not? Can you evaluate the condition of this property? Can you evaluate the value of the property? Can you evaluate whether you should, what interest rate you should be giving? Can you evaluate the, the, the legal counsel on this and whether you're getting the right legal advice? Your ability to evaluate a transaction is going to be the number one factor that will determine your success or failure. And that's even arguably the same in your personal relationships, but I'm not here. To, I'm not Dr. Phil or Oprah, so I won't talk about either one of those right now. But at least from private money lending, I think your audience really needs to know that their analysis process is fantastic. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. You hear it frowned upon by a lot of people who want you to do transactions with them. I think it's great. Don't do anything. I'd rather you, I would tell you, if you're my friend and you call me and said, Stephen, I'm, I need to ask you some advice. I say, look, I'm, actually, I've never regretted a deal I've never done. The only regrets I have are deals that maybe I've done that I wish I would have done a better job at. So don't do the deal if you're not sure. And hone your skill of analysis. Hone that skill. It gets frowned upon in real estate investing a lot. People who overanalyze deals. That's hell with that. That's a fantastic skill. Over-evaluate, over-evaluate, over-evaluate. Get really good at evaluating. Because when it's time to pull the trigger, you will be right on the target. Versus you making all these other shots and trying to evaluate on the range, trying to figure it out uh, later. That's poor advice, and it's usually pushed a lot by people who have some other agenda that they want you to move forward on. But I'm a fan of analysis process. I'm a fan of you learning, your, getting your analysis skills down and your evaluation skills down before you pull the trigger. And when you finally do, just remember that your evaluation skills are what are going to make or break you. It's a single, if I can point to you one factor, it is your ability to evaluate, and you want to be good at it. Not No, excuse me, you want to be great at it. That's going to lead us right into the 80-20. And, and one of the things I do, I would love for you to, to touch on is um, that ability to evaluate and to, to do it accurately, quickly, and with confidence, let's say is 20% of becoming a lender. The other 80% is, yeah, according to the 80-20 rule, the other 80-20 is, is pure mindset. And, and I, I know that there's going to be a lot of listeners out there who would think, yeah, this would be cool, but get, getting them over, it's, it's funny to see people like yourself 
uh, on the other side after you've made the journey and it's like, oh, it, it, that was just a, you know, I th- I, here I thought that was the Mississippi and it's just this little creek that ran through my yard. You, you, we've established that 20%, getting someone into that, that mode for that other 80% to get them to, I'm going to lend out money. I can lose it, but I've, I've evaluated the risk. I've evaluated the, the person. I've evaluated the property. Is there anything you can give a, a, a newbie, someone who hasn't lent before to help them get that 80% rolling? So I will say that if you want to be in the business of lending and not one-off loans, that you, I would say that 20% of the Pareto principle that you're referencing, probably 10% marketing and 10% underwriting. Overall, you know, we'll call that evaluation for now. You you hit on a lot, a lot right there. I want to mention what I think you were referencing towards about fear. One of, I was interviewed some years ago about making the transition to commercial real estate investing and how I did it. And one of my biggest regrets in business is not transitioning to commercial estate investing sooner. And I, being that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very conservative investor, I'm deathly, deathly, like dead, but deathly allergic to losing money. I cannot, that cannot happen. And I was really afraid of losing money being in the commercial space. And then I got there and like you said, I thought it was a Mississippi and it was a, you know, it was a creek uh, or a puddle at best. And I regret that. And one of the things I, and looking back, I had to ask myself, why, Stephen, did that happen to you? And the answer is that uh, I was using fear as a roadblock. Um, when I saw fear, I thought, okay, stop, be careful, don't proceed, turn around, there's no, no exit, you, you cannot make it through this. And I realized that when I finally did make the transition, what ended up happening is I was using fear, we'll call it buoys, or as guides to get me through the path. And who I'm really afraid of, and who I've seen lose lots of money, are people who have no fear. When you meet good investors who are really well-established and very successful, and I'm not talking about a million or two million, I'm talking about 50, 100 million dollar investors, half a billion dollar investors, a million dollar investors, what you'll find is they too are worried. They too have fear about whether this is going to work, but they're using that to navigate as turn, you know, veer left here or veer right here. They're proceeding with that information. They're not stopping and turning around, which is how I used to operate. And I can speak to that very vividly because once I did make the leap, I did have to look back and say, okay, what was it that I did differently now? And I, that, if there was number one, one, number one, number one thing I would love to share with people who are looking at, at making a transition to being the lender, it would be that, that look, use your fear as a, as a guide, not as a roadblock, and be responsible, but still proceed forward. Regarding the mindset, it's actually you know, no success in this space and maybe others, but definitely in this space is without a doubt, uh, you know, 20% skill set and 80% mindset. You know, skill set, you need them, that's 20%. But 80%, it is all mindset that you are going to evaluate this, you're going to assess the risk, you're going to use fear as a, as a guide, not as a roadblock, you're going to become better at evaluation, you're going to look at the CIAE, it's, it's, a, it's a mindset game. And the only thing that's separating me from being in the business of, of lending and financing for, you know, 15, 20 years, and the person who's sitting, listening to this, you know, in their car right now in traffic, the only difference is, I had the mindset to move forward. We we had no different skill set. I assure you, they could be they could be they probably had better skill sets than I did. The skill set's the least important part for getting started. It's going to be can I go get the resources that I need to be successful at this? And in the twenty first century, in 2017, 2018, you can find anything you want online or find someone who knows somebody who can get it get it for you. Pretty much for any industry that we could speak of legally on this podcast. If it's legal, you can find someone online giving information out about it, including your your podcast. You're doing it right now. Ten years ago, no one would be on a podcast talking about what they used for underwriting criteria. I mean, you, your podcast alone will help guide people into their business of financing. All they have to do is keep tuning into your podcast and keep emailing you questions. You get them the answers. They keep growing their business. That's a skill set issue. The mindset issue is: I'm, Am I going to go forward regardless of what I'm? What, regardless of what is in my way, am I going to keep moving forward? And the answer is yes. Don't go through the roadblock. Go around it, and I think you'll be really, really successful. It's it's, it's a great way to look at it. I, I, for for me personally, I have a little mantra. Some days I'll wake up and I just I just feel a little nervous. Maybe it's about a big meeting or a client I'm trying to get at, at the office, or maybe you know somebody's come to me and said, "Hey, would you look at this subject two deal?" Recognizing that analysis analysis paralysis, I should say, and my mantra immediately becomes: take a baby step, just keep walking. It can be to the side, it can be backwards, it can be forwards. Maybe not backwards, but just keep moving little by little by little by little. And quite frankly, I think it's how I got my wife to agree to marry me. Uh, was 
what, what was that was that 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 tactic but I, I mean for me and i've got a long way to go with mindset i, I still consider myself uh, you know in my infancy is in, in terms of investing in business and everything else but that has done me a lot of good service is just to just to keep moving keep reading keep moving keep talking yeah, to people I mean, you know? I'll, I'll i'll echo what you say i mean i i think some people who are close to me know that i've meditated every day for the last three and a half years i'll say I've not missed a day that I know of in the last three, three and a half years. I've meditated every day. And the way I've, I do that is I commit to meditating at least one breath a day. It may not be one minute, but one breath, I will be present for that breath, the entire inhale, and entire exhale. Some days I do more than one breath, but I do it every day. And I think the answer to what you just said was making forward progress every day. It doesn't have to be Monday through you know, Sunday, but you, you know, the five days a week that you are working or six days a week that you are working, hopefully it's not seven, but if it is fine, that every day you are doing something to move that forward. And if you're really interested in being, I believe, clearly, I believe private lending is the future. I created ZeusCrowdfunding.com, currently the seventh most successful online real estate crowdfunding platform in the country. Uh, as of an award we got about a week ago, that's why I'm saying that. So clearly I believe that's the future and I want to be there as what was it? The hockey, the hockey player, I'm forgetting his name right now. He said, don't play where the puck is, play where it will be. I think Gretzky. Thank you, Wayne Gretzky. Thank you. He, you know, I want to be where the puck is. I believe private lending. I think you and other people who are in your in this space, I think that's the future. And I think more and more people will be looking for individual private lenders and not institutional lenders. And as more and more resources become available, I there at one at some point in the future, there will be no difference between me and you and what we offer. We will be offering identical everything and your risk evaluation, you'll be able to use the same third party systems that I use. You'll have your own Z score, your own risk assessment score. You'll hire someone else to do that work for you. And, and they'll, they'll give you the information and you'll make the determination. Back to, you know, taking a step every day. Like I said, you know, meditating every day is pretty easy if you only need to do one breath. I like to say prospecting for your business is like sleeping. No matter how much you did yesterday, you still need it today. So for you building your business, no matter what you did yesterday, you still need to be. You need to do it today as well. And the last metaphor I'll tell you regarding this is something that really motivates me: is uh, is deposit the checks. You understand what that means, right? Deposit the checks. There are people who have checks, and then of course they're excited to deposit them because that's when they get the money. But I've seen real estate investors who won't do the exciting part. Isn't the check? It's depositing it because that's when you know you get the money. Well, there are other feelings like that earlier on, but investors don't do it, or lenders don't do it. For example, we know that you know, when you have the check, it would be crazy not to deposit it because you don't get anything without depositing it. It's just a piece of paper. It literally is a piece of paper. The minute you deposit it, it becomes money and coins and dollars and everything else. Yet, in, same thing happens with investors earlier on in the sales process. Lenders won't go prospecting, but yet that's the check. You, if you prospect, that's, what give, that's like putting the money in the bank. It's the step before getting the check. So of course you deposit your checks. Everyone does that. So you should do all the parts that before that that get you to the point of getting the check, so that you can then deposit it. And and I, I'm a fan of baby steps and and micro steps. I'm a fan of people who want to do push-ups, doing one push-up a day uh, until they get up to the goal they want. And one push-up a day will make a difference. And I'm a fan of people who want to prospect in business every day because if you don't, you'll never hit your goal. Uh, you'll you'll never get there. Working on it every day is what matters. A vision ultimately is you articulating what your faith is, what you believe in. Um, you, if you have a vision for your business or for your life, your personal life, with your children, with your retirement, whatever that is, faith and vision are, uh, they are synonymous. Just a vision is one written. Faith is something you tell yourself internally. A vision is when you actually write that down. And I'm not talking about having hallucination visions. I'm talking about a vision for your business. And it's just a matter of articulating what it is your faith, you're going to have faith in, that this is what, you're, what you see the future to be and what you believe in. It, incidentally, this is what you were alluding to, fear and faith are actually the same thing. They're both imagine, imaginative futures, except one empowers you and one disempowers you. Fear is something you made up about the future that disempowers you. Faith and a vision is something you envision about the future that empowers you. But guess what? The best part of that is that they're both made up and you are the author of that. And you can choose whether you're going to empower yourself or disempower yourself. And when you're going to think about the future, the best the way that will empower you is to create a future um, that is positive, that aligns with your vision. Uh, the reality may not line up against that. But if you have a choice of I'm going to envision, I'm going to have faith about something that empowers me, that's going to improve the quality of your life and you'll probably make better decisions that we know scientifically from a, enough empirical evidence, you will make better decisions if you're uh, optimistic and real resilient 
than if you guide all your decisions by fear. That's not a myth and that's not my opinion. There's enough uh, uh, psychology and empirical evidence to prove that if you're making your decisions based on uh, fear, you, you are less going to be less successful than the people who are being more optimistic and resilient. And you have a choice about that. And so I recommend that every investor create their vision and they already have one actually, it's in there. They have a belief of what they want, a hope of what they want. They just don't ever articulate it out. And I think putting it on paper really solidifies it. I think, I don't know if it's John Maxwell or someone else who has a great quote about that, a, uh, a dream written down is a goal and we all have those dreams. We also have the fears and you, again, you get to choose between the two. It's up to you. What are you reading right now? What's on, what's on your, your nightstand or? I read, uh, I'm reading something or listening to something constantly. I, I think I'm in the middle of two different books or three different books. I just finished The Energy Bus which is a cool book, a metaphor, a little quirky, but I got a, a good, cool life nugget out of it. The Energy Bus was a cool book. Ownership Thinking is another book uh, that I just started. I barely cracked it, but uh, th- this was a gift. Oh, no, it wasn't a gift. Someone told me about it, and hopefully there'll be a gift in there somewhere that I'll be able to get a nugget out. I am a, I'm a slow reader, but I'm always looking for one to two nuggets to justify my 12 to $20 purchase. I'm listening to the book uh, Essentialism which the universe has really told me to buy that book in so many words. I, I won't go into it, and I'm only being a little facetious about the universe, but a lot of things are lining up for me to read that book uh, in my life and simplifying things and making more critical decisions. A book I've read not too long ago that I really enjoy that I highly recommend is uh, The One Thing. Uh, the One Thing is a book I really enjoyed uh, reading, and um, essentialism is similar to that, but more about just simplifying your decisions, getting better quality of life. I'm more concerned about quality over quantity. And so these are books that are really calling, calling to me. Are there any, I know you, you spoke to your mentors and, and, and partners uh, along the way, but was there any books that got you into lending or uh, enhanced your mindset of, of lending? Or was it just more of a practical knowledge, uh, you know, with, with people? Uh, the one thing I love about lending is it is definitely a people business. As much as everything is online in the documents and reviewing, it is at the end of the day, you're judging a person. Yeah, I, I am a, I'm a fan, uh, certainly, of partners more than mentors. I think looking for partners gets you the mentorship without having the mentor-mentee relationship. So I have found in my 20 years of business, not, you know, not 30, 40, but 20 years, that I can get mentoring through partnerships and, and provide value to my partner and get a lot of value without having to be in a mentor-mentee relationship. Now, I'm not saying mentors are bad, but when I use the phrase mentor, I really mean I was partnering with somebody or doing something with someone or trying to do something with them. And in, in essence, they either overtly or inadvertently mentored me in the process, whether they knew it or not. And they gave me nuggets that, that really stood, uh, stood out to me and that I went to work on. And you never know. I mean, I have to remind myself of this all the time with my own children. And in a lot of business relationships I have, you never know when you say something that the, the, someone will hold on to those words and really it'll alter their life or their, it'll, at least they're thinking about something. And I'm looking for that in partners. How do they think about transactions? What are they doing? So I just want to be really clear that I'm, I've never been mentored. I've, I have been in partnerships where I received mentoring as a byproduct of my relationship with them. Regarding books, I, the first real book I, I would say that I read, and I was never a reader growing up. In fact, I don't think in junior high, uh, and a little bit of high school I had, uh, I ever read a full book. And I tried to avoid books when I was in my undergraduate studies as well, uh, including all the English lit classes and all that. I've never really completed books. I never liked them. And then some in my early 20s, I really, I was introduced to Think and Grow Rich. Uh, and indirectly, I was actually introduced to audio, an audio recording of Napoleon Hill. The audio recording is called The Science of Personal Achievement. And when I heard that for the first time in Napoleon Hill's first own voice, I was blown away by the content and the nostalgic feeling that I got and the connection I got to the material of hearing it being read by Napoleon Hill. Now, I don't think he's anything other than an author, just to be very clear, but I felt a nostalgic feeling and uh, I connected a lot with the material. It's like, uh, I think it, it's a Kierkegaard who said, a good book reads you, you don't read it. And I think that that audio really read me really well. And I, I, I remember exactly where I was in the parking lot, where I was when I heard it for the very first time, when a friend let me listen to it. And I was, I fell in love with the content. And so I read Science of Personal Achievement, then I read Think and Grow Rich, which I didn't care for, by the way, uh, as much as the Science of Personal Achievement. To me, that book's much more relatable. And then uh, I read, um, of course, Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was really young, but about lending itself, there aren't too many books about lending that I know of 
they could be out there. I probably would be suspect of them, to be honest, unless you're going to write one and then I'll, you can deduct that from this podcast. I mean, because I, I really think one size doesn't fit all. When you're going you're, you're to have 20 other people on this podcast in the next you know, couple of months, I'm sure, and they're all going to have a different say on what they do uh, and how they do it and why what they value is different than what I value. And yet they're still getting to the top of the mountain because like I said, in the very beginning, there's more than one way to get to the top of the mountain and their way works for them and my way works for me. And I think lending fundamentals are the same, but beyond that, I don't think, uh, I don't, I think it, I think you start diverging too much to have a book of one size fits all. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you with that. And with that, Stephen, again, I want to, I just want to thank you for coming on and being the first guest and, and sharing your, your, your wisdom and uh, your lending experience. And as this uh, podcast grows, I would love to have you back on at a future date. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for including me. Thanks for the, for honoring me with being the first person. Absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. Wow. A lot of great information in that interview. I want to thank Stephen Kaufman again for coming on and honoring me by being the first person interviewed on the private lender podcast. And thank you for giving us all that wonderful information. You'll be able to go find most of that on the show notes page at privatelenderpodcast.com slash episode one. We'll also have some links to the books and some of the concepts that Stephen discussed. I feel like I owe you an apology because I didn't push further on the story uh, where the guy tried to kill Stephen. I, I don't know, something about it when he, I guess when he said that you know, criminal charges were pressed, I figured, okay, that that's enough, but now I'm dying to know the rest of the story and, and how the guy tried to kill him. So perhaps the next time Stephen comes on the show, that'll be the first question uh, for him. So I apologize for that, Linder Nation. But Stephen also spoke about building your team. And as this podcast continues, we're going to do just that. We're going to talk about the attorneys, escrow agents, appraisers, inspectors, real estate agents, other professionals and entrepreneurs that you can use, that you have at your disposal to mitigate that risk that Stephen spoke about making that loan. So stay tuned for that. And if you could go to iTunes or Google Play or whatever platform you use to get to this podcast, please leave us a a rating and a review. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more this can grow, the bigger it can become, and the bigger our community can be. One of the goals I have for the Private Lender Podcast is to help you become prosperous, not just financially, but in other ways. So please remember the best type of lending involves things you possess that are far more viable than money, things that you can freely lend out every day without having to look at the numbers first, and things you can lend without expecting any form of payment in return. These are the most important loans that you can make. So please, lend your support, lend your ear, or lend your helping hand to somebody or an organization that needs it, because the more you give, the more prosperous you become. Thanks again for listening, everybody. I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time.